0: Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan
1: and Mark. Welcome. Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com. Episode 172, Friday, 15th of January, 2021, Mark, 2021. And, gee, another week has gone by, Mark, another week. And while I remember, Mark, I just want to get stuck into, not get stuck into, um, talk about an email reply that um, backed up something I said, Mark. Uh, It's about time somebody agreed (laughs) with me. And that's an email we had from... Alex, a vet student in Florida, and his comment was, I very much agree on the SI unit issue. And for those of you who didn't listen to last week's episode, please do so. I review the pink book, the small mammal Bible, as people call it, and I was very critical of the fact that they had reported units in non-SI units and uh I wasn't very happy about that at all, considering that most of the world uses SI units, Mark, and um, Alex agrees with it, me. Um, in the American medical system, says Alex, I had a bit of human medicine training before starting my veterinary path, is mostly, if not all, SI units, Mark, from the patient side due to drugs, etc. At least in veterinary medicine, I've always been told to calculate everything into kilograms and grams because most of our drugs are in milligrams per kilogram, etc. Yes. So I agree wholeheartedly, Alex. And yes, I I just cannot fathom why they... They didn't um, see that um, or w- whether there was an oversight there of of not converting it because it would have been a fairly simple matter to have both the SI and conventional units in there, wouldn't it, Mark? And I, I did go back through and flick through some of the um, tables there of the units and, yeah, there were whole pages, Mark, of, of just non-SI reference ranges for for some of the species in that book.
0: And it's always like... Distressing to have to sit down and, um, you know, for some of those situations, you can get um, factors, you know, multiply to get to this. But it always becomes... It's a pain in
1: the arm mark it's a pain in the arm isn't it yes that's what you're saying definitely but Um, it's
0: not a pain brendan it's not a pain at all to get messages from people like alex we love to hear um, those different points of view and uh, different perspectives and um, experiences and to you know i know on occasions they are going to agree with you but uh, um, it's always good to get that spark of perspective from someone else
1: Absolutely. VetGurus at com. And thank you, Alex, for that email. Um, very pertinent. Um, any other sort of news, relevant news, Mark, for the week before we jump into um, some news items?
0: Well, I've only got irrelevant news. I've been spending a bit of time searching for peregrine falcons, Brendan. Ah. Um, there's a bit of a, a, a local... Um, Oh, I suppose you'd call it an eruption. Um, We—I've always had each summer. There's a perch near home where one bird sits and hunts, but um, there's been uh, four or five up and up and down the Hunter Valley, um, and most especially, a, a vagrant from uh, Siberia has landed on Ash Island, a few kilometers from my home. I haven't been able to catch that bird yet. Well, when I say catch it, I don't actually lay hands on it, of course, but I could. (laughs) But I haven't been able to see it or get a photo of it. Um, But, um, but yeah, uh, very interesting time with the peregrines. And I did manage to get one. The bird that's local... Um, it did, um, have a little hunt. I always enjoy watching it hunt and seeing the different techniques it uses. But I've, when it does hunt, it's almost like it teases. I think it does know me, Brendan. I've watched it now for four years and it, it looks at me and, and doesn't do anything when I have the camera and then does the most amazing things when I don't have the camera.
1: It probably just shakes its head when it <laughs> sees you again. Now, there he is. In his camo outfit with that big <laughs> long lens uh, what a knob uh, <laughs> but obviously- Excellent. um have you got some good photos of it?
0: I'll send you the one I got uh, last night um it was uh, it was okay
1: okay means it's probably um. Commercial, publishable, I'd say, um, from you, Mark, because of your standards. Um, Excellent. Well, I'm going to jump into my news story, Mark, and it's about flatulent cows. And flatulent cows are no longer on the nose, according to the title of this article, with the seaweed solution to the climate problem. And I want your um, opinion on this one, Mark, after I've just quickly gone through the article. And this is about Australian scientists and a couple of Australian companies um, who are doing commercial trials with major dairy and beef companies of a feed supplement that they say can enable livestock to become carbon neutral. And they are using an intellectual property-licensed product, food additive made from seaweed, Mark, to reduce livestock emissions by more than 80%. Mm -hmm. And according to livestock production um, notes or data... Livestock production generates around 10% of Australia's greenhouse gas emissions. And um, the aim with this particular product is to reduce their burps, Mark, and uh, which are loaded with the methane, as, as a lot of our listeners will know. And um, they're quite excited about it. I expect they're quite excited about perhaps making a lot of money off their proprietary <laughs> product. Uh, what's your thoughts on this, Mark? Well, I think,
0: like... You, I suspect that it's a great idea that the the, um, the methane causes a disproportionate effect on uh, you know the the anthropogenic um, warming and uh, and so it's an outstanding development. I worry a little bit about the um, I don't know the the commercialization of this science. Like I understand, there has to come a stage in a process where someone has to pay the bills. But I don't know that I'm entirely comfortable with the whole process being predicated on not the good it does but the money it makes, Brendan. That's probably my comment.
1: Yes. Well, I suppose one good thing about this product is that they are having – encouraging these seaweed farms that have been grown off South Australia, Mark, um, which also create fish habitats and in supposedly improves water quality in the ocean area where they grow in the seaweed for this particular um, end product. But, yeah, my sort of bottom line take on this is, and I probably never would have said this 10 years ago, is it's eat less meat, isn't <laughs> <it>? <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think that's probably the, the easier way to try and uh, reduce reduce that, uh, um, rather than going about it the opposite um, method. So that's sort of my take on it, Mark, or my my thoughts on it. But yes, it's 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 good that they're thinking of these sort of products, um, but. Then you know it's not dealing well with all the other aspects of of resource use and and feed, you know, the kilogram feed um, for meat, etc., compared with vegetable matter growth for food. Yeah, so yeah, there you go. That's my story, Mark. And it's well, it's we'd count that as a positive. That's a good story, it's a positive story, yes. Um, and what have you got, Mark? Oh,
0: mine is. Is a positive story, but I think I'll be <laughs> a, I'll be able to find a little way of twisting it so that it's not. Um, um, my story is about the uh, now famous photograph from your part of the world. From for, well, you know, um,
1: not far at all. <laughs>
0: yes, um, the wonderful St Kilda Beach. Um, there's a colony of fairy penguins, and uh, and um, Tobias Baumgartner um a professional photographer was able to snap a wonderful photograph the back of two penguins one penguin's flipper um very uh anthropomorphically placed around the other um looking out at the the lights the out of focus um uh um lights in the background of the city um and it's a you know um one got global awards the image um and uh and it has a wonderful story to it too, Brendan, doesn't it?
1: Yes. Well, you need to tell me the story there, Mark, and whether it's um, a true story or not. Yes, beautiful bouquet there, Mark. Oh! The yes. <laughs> um, as she Yes. So what's the story with it, Mark? So so he reported what? That um, the image was two fairy penguins standing there for hours, flipper in flipper, watching the sparkling lights and... uh In his original post, I think he said, a volunteer approached me and told me that the white one was an elderly lady who had lost her partner and apparently so did the younger male on the left of the picture. And they meet regularly to comfort each other, standing for hours, Watching the dancing lights of the nearby city, Mark.
0: But <laughs> what was the truth? The truth, yes. Our good friend Tobias later admitted that his post had been slightly romanticized. Romanticized. Roman. I think he means romanticized. Um, and that the penguins not, might um, actually be related. Um, and I think, look, penguins sit out on the. you know, they spend most of their time in the water. They come out only to um molt and uh sit on the beach molting. They're they're not thinking about anything um except uh in close being close proximity to each other and um and I wouldn't I I don't know that they would be spending all that much, you know, it's a chance thing. I think he's romanticized it uh well well beyond What most scientists would be happy with. And there is, he did cop a little bit of flack from it. Uh, You know, scientists did point out that such uh, poetic license um, can often have a, a negative impact when you apply those. Uh, human characteristics to animals, you can misunderstand their behaviour, misapprehend what they are doing, and then lead to um, similarly inappropriate behaviours of the people around them, given that they don't understand why the animals are doing it. Um, So, yeah, I think it's a beautiful photo. It uh, um, does have a romantic aspect to it. Um, but I do think you've got to take into account uh, the penguins may not be doing exactly what we imagine them to be
1: doing when we look at the photograph. Absolutely. Good picture, bad story. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I, offered,
0: story. I offered on for five minutes a new subject in <laughs> four
1: words. Well, let's jump into our main topic, Mark, and it's a it's a cracker, isn't it? It's a good one. Well done for suggesting. This. <laughs> it is fatty tumours or lumps in budgerigars. And gee, why do we want to talk about this, Mark? Is it is it something that you, we commonly see in pet pet um, budgerigars, Mark? Little little lumps and bumps on them.
0: We see it all the time, Brendan. We see it literally every, da- every day. I saw one today. Um, and it is such a common thing that I think it's a good
1: topic for us to have a yarn about. So, well, you've answered my first question, Mark. Is it common or not? Um, well, let's expand that a little bit more. Um, is there a particular age incidence in budgerigars that it's more common um, as in is it more common as they age um, and we'll talk about the reasons um, a little bit later but also is there other species of pet birds that it's very common in or is it budgerigars that sort of have the have cornered the, the market for fatty lumps? Well
0: certainly we see a lot of it in budgerigars and, um, and it's probably not that's surprising because um, in the wild they are highly active flyers, highly energetic, flying vast distances in um, amazingly large flocks. Um, they do that murmuration thing. There's always a, um, a excitement when the numbers build up to the level where they get murmurations. But they to do that stuff, they burn off a lot of energy. And the seeds they eat in the wild are not as generously um, uh, dosed with uh, energy-rich carbohydrates and fats as the ones we give them at home. Um, so we restrict their exercise often to some, something ridiculously small, maybe only 18 inches. I've gone, I've gone non-SI. 450-millimetre. Um, uh, <laughs> cubed cage um, and um, and then we uh, give them the ad lib uh, board of um, of highly energetic food. So it is a time-sensitive thing. The older they get, the more likely they are to occur.
1: And species-wise, you mentioned that we see it all the time in budgies. So if if you would, off the top of your head, name two other pet bird species that you see fatty lumps on, what would they be? Well, they're the
0: cockatoos, the um, sulphur-crested cockatoo and the galah. We see heaps and heaps of galahs with, uh, with fatty lumps, fatty growths of one sort or another.
1: Ah, and murmuration, Mark, that's a good word. Do you want to expand on what murmuration is?
0: Well, I thought everyone would know, Brendan. That's where those flocks of birds or other animals move in a in a sweetly um, poetic and ballet like motion and sweep and curve across the the sky in a pattern as if they are a single organism. Starlings commonly do it in the UK. There's often yes,
1: yeah. yes, and that's a that's a word that I would include in our quiz mark um, murmuration, because, as you know, we. We like to have an unusual quiz every year when we used to get together. Um, by the time people
0: hear us say words like "murmuration" and "bouquet," they're going to think we're pretentious gits, Brendan. No,
1: nah, we're we're fifteen minutes in; they'll be asleep by now. Anyway, Mark, they'll be they'll be nodding off and they'll be murmuring in their sleep. So we have the incidents then, Mark. So what are these? What are the signs of it? Do do do. Does that client phone up and say, my my budgie's got a, a fatty lump on it? Is that what they bring in those animals in for or, or is it an incidental finding on a on a health check?
0: Well, the bad thing about it is, that, um, is feathers. The bad thing about it is feathers because the feathers conceal the actual contours and shape of the skin and the body of the bird. Now, most birds will primarily deposit um uh, adipose tissue in rows uh, in specific subcutaneous locations. Um, and so people don't, you know, unless you're prepared to handle the bird and uh, wet the feathers and get a vision of the skin, you're not going to know that they're building up these uh, significant uh, adipose deposits. And it's only when they get quite large that they'll then, for a variety of reasons, develop uh, problems. Um, so Oftentimes it's exactly as you said, people come in um, either not realising there's anything there at all on a general health assessment or they come in because um, the thing's gotten so damn big that it's poked through the plumage and now the bird's got a gigantic yellow lump.
1: And then we get sort of secondary problems, don't we with those which we'll talk about Well, we'll talk about now so apart apart from no signs at all mark what are the what are the other signs that that may actually be seen either by the client or or you see when you're examining that that bird and it comes off? well the, the key one that we see apart from, apart from seeing an actual lump besides the lump, lump. And, and where let's let's <laughs> go back one step where where are these lumps or lump? mostly located mark and a it's bit. a
0: it's a really good question because there's a very significant um thing to look out for as a consequence of the location most of the lumps occur independent location in in sort of you know beside the the legs or around the vent in those positions way down at the bottom of the the body and so um the key thing about that is, it's the same location that we might be likely to see some form of herniation in birds that um, that are prone to that sort of thing, and particularly with uh, budgerigars and, and galars, They they are. It's important to distinguish between those. The sorts of things that happen to those lumps is that they change the shape of going to the toilet for the bird. So I always talk to clients about the little tunnel through the plumage that the bird creates as he squats, he or she squats to pass a stool. Um, And once there is alteration to the body shape there, then it's very difficult for the bird to adjust. And so the stool will end up landing rather than passing through the little plumage tunnel um, they it ends up touching the plumage and getting tangled. So um, fecal entanglement in perichlorical plumage is often a thing that alerts us to look for um, a lump or bump that might be changing the shape.
1: Nothing worse than fecal entanglement, Mark, is, is, is my thought on that. Yes. So what do we do, Mark? What do we what do? We do? Mention to the client. What's our workup? What's our workup with this? What do we say to the client? That's exactly the tone that I take when I see one of these. What do we do? My
0: goodness, what do we do? Um, So the first thing that we do is um, these. The the frustrating thing with these, Brendan, is that they are metabolically fragile animals, and so our instincts, being veterinarians, is to chop the damn thing out. It's a lump. It's uh, often, most often, if it's not a hernia or something sinister, it's subcutaneous and so um, uh, it presents something to us that almost encourages us to chop it out. But these birds are fragile and they often have a concurrent um, a disease that is not quite as apparent. So they will often have um, things like uh, a Hepatomegaly and hepatopathy, which may lead to uh, poor clotting. Um, They often have altered thyroid function. So, the first thing to do before you pull out the radiosurgical unit um, is to um, do some blood work and uh, definitely get a much better handle on the bird's metabolic status. And while you're doing that, um, I think there, there definitely are. Cases, you know, you'll have seen some of the ones that come in where the mass is so big and it's been bouncing on the rough perch for so long that now it's got It's had an ulcerated area sawn into it by the perch, and now it's bleeding. And those ones give you, you know, they become an emergency um, in these birds. But very often, if you can get to them before that, um, you do have some time. You don't need to chop them out straight away. You can put some things in place that might well lessen the likelihood that you've got to uh, aggressively and dangerously surgicalise these
1: well, I'm going to have to ask it. What do you do with those horrible emergency ones that are bleeding? They're a nightmare, aren't they? How do you deal with that? What's your approach to those? Well, Euthanasia?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, generally we do, uh, we, get, we get in and chop them out. Um, we do put a number of things in place before we do that. So the first one is um, uh, tr- pro-coagulant therapy. We um, many of these birds are vitamin K um, are relatively vitamin K deficient, so um, they they fail the faulty liver. F- fails to produce sufficient vitamin K to maintain their uh, hemostasis, and the smaller amount of vitamin K that they have is quickly exhausted. So before going to surgery, supplementing them with vitamin K is step one. We also use uh, varzolam and tranexamic acid as a coagulant um, uh, support. Um, and two other things, we always have these birds on fluids because blood pressure can be a problem. And um, we want to make sure that with if at all possible we have some donor blood um, so that we can um, uh, administer additional red cells if we do have a major bleed because bleeding really is the is the main problem with these guys you cut them um, and they they they're, they're seductively uh, um, uh, Good to start with, you make your first few incisions and you think um, through the skin and just down a little bit further, and everything looks good. There's no major hemorrhage. I'm shaping around this in the right way to get it closed, and then bang, there's some blood. And it just becomes horrendous in those cases that you haven't prepared. Um,
1: and it often is the reason that the birds don't survive. They're the ones you refer to, Doctor Mark. I think those ones. Mark. Okay, so the ones that aren't bleeding, Mark. So, what's our approach? you sort of hinted at, at, at the way we deal with these, and I think it's time is is your friend, isn't it? Time is your it's friend, time. and you, and I think that's
0: exactly right. And it h- harkens back to so many of the discussions we have about our avian exotic uh, patients. It's uh, managing the husbandry. We want to change the diet. We want the birds to do things. We want them to forage. We want behavioral enrichment. We want to train them to do things. Um, We change them from the high energy all seed diet. um, And we'll probably use the seeds still, but uh, probably select a a seed mix that has less fatty seeds in it. Um, There's a number of formulated diets that uh, are available now and supplementing um, the seeds with a significant proportion of those. But not putting them on a in a bowl and just asking the bird to um, lean over and eat them. Uh, setting up things so the bird has to explore and do things, so it's burning energy, um, and um, and that metabolic change can get to a point where it certainly um, changes the hemodynamics of the bird. The hemostatic mechanisms uh, return to a better health, but also we've definitely had cases that um, that the uh, Fatty lump is not... There's a lot of these that are lipomas, so they're technically tumours, but there definitely are a proportion of these that are um, are literally um, normal fat that's, you know, fallen, torn, whatever, in a different way. And they're still... able to be managed by the body's own metabolism. So as the body uh, goes into negative energy balance because we're exercising them all, they can actually shrink, Brendan. You can actually get some of these lumps to go down, which
1: makes you the hero. So what's the sort of ballpark percentage of these these budgies with these fatty lumps that you think – are probably that case where where we can just shrink them down and that they're normal sort of fat um, that we can dissolve or exercise off, et cetera, or metabolise. I think that it's probably something, in my hands, it's probably
0: about a quarter, something like one in four of them are going to never end up going to surgery and um, largely we're going to um, shrink or even um, resolve that fatty lump altogether.
1: So... Your approach then with these, you do your basic workup, you do your clinical exam, you do your basic bloods to look for um, whether we've got a, a more seriously stressed or or, or diseased or, or compromised patient and assuming that it isn't with that budgie, you go down the track of tincture of time and, and the diet and husbandry with them. Um, if... Do, do you, do you do that first and then wait or do you go in and do it, do you think about doing biopsies of them um, early on or do you just do the, the ones where the blood's are normal, do you wait and then think about if that lump's not going down within a few weeks or so, assuming they're doing the right things husbandry-wise, um, is that when you start thinking about jumping in for biopsy or removing the lump completely? It's I,
0: generally speaking, there's not too many of these with budge regards that I I'll, I will often think about um, fine needle aspirates, particularly yes. if they're um, you know if they're not showing the characteristic texture or location, we'll be much more interested in getting some cells and confirming that we're right. We're probably very rarely doing um, you know wedge or um, minimal uh, you know any excision biopsy. We're trying to take the whole thing out once we knock the bird out and we get into a position of 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 taking some samples, we we push to take the whole thing out. So, I would say what you described is exactly right. Most of the ones that we think are going okay metabolically, the ones that we think are um, obese um, and um, meanable to changed metabolism, we set that up, give them a few weeks, and observe the changes. Um, And if they, you know, the ones that uh, don't follow a pattern of recovery, or they seem to progress. Um, uh, we're probably trying. You know, the, there's. If I look across the large number of cases that we do this to, the time that we do a fine needle aspirate actually varies um, depending on you know the the initial presentation or the progress um, in response to treatment. So I wouldn't say there's like a unique time where we go, okay, we always do the FNA right now.
1: Yep. Any other little tips about you mentioned those bleeding ones and and doing the actual surgery? Any other sort of tips or techniques for removing that lump? I mean, is is there, say, if that lump did decrease by 20%, 25%, 50% or so, do you just tend to leave it then um, because you've got? probably a healthier bird generally as well, and you probably do follow up bloods that, that perhaps may show some improvement with any abnormal blood values as well. Um, do you just leave them or is your aim always trying to remove that lump completely? No, if we're confident that it's a, a
0: benign um, or, uh, you know, the skin's been stretched and the fat's been changed slightly in position, but we're getting it to shrink down so it doesn't present, a, a you know, a, a something that's like to, likely to ulcerate or we've now got the bird um, defecating without staining its plumage. We're, we're, we're um, generally happy to wait and see. Um, because these surgeries, even in the perfect circumstance, entail a certain risk, um, it, is, it is if we're getting them to get smaller um, then we will just wait and watch, Um, but it's always, the surgery does have a a couple of aspects to it that I think are important. One of the things that I really work hard to do is um, I think a lot of these um, lumps end up being, there's there's different ones. There's just excessively fat birds where the rolls of fat get into trouble. There's lipomas, benign tumours. There's um, uh, malignant um, fatty tumours. But there's also um, the the type of growth that occurs as a reaction to necrosing fat. Um, So the birds might have a trauma. They're moderately obese. The trauma compromises the blood supply to some adipose tissue. That adipose tissue dies and the fat goes rancid in the subcutaneous space, causes a huge reaction. Um, And so those um, birds... Uh, we want to make sure that we don't cause um, you know, more necrotic fat in our surgery. We want to not leave little bits of um, fat in place. So we do tend to try not just to remove the mass, um, but be very conscious of the surrounding adipose tissue and even the placement of our sutures, Brendan. I think you can trigger a repeat surgery if you're a little bit careless about the placement of your um. Subcut, you know, subcutaneous layer, create obliterating the dead space. If that's overly tight, then you can uh, cause more necrotic fat and uh, ensure that you end up with a repeat problem over the ensuing year or two.
1: Yes, and you mentioned sutures. What's what's your tip or trick with closing that surgical site for those ones where you've extracted that that mass mark um, to to try and prevent? And obviously, you're going to mention analgesia as part of the um, trying to keep the bird from from annoying that surgical site but do you do intradermal do you do, use tissue glue as a routine do you use simple interrupted non absorbable absorbable what do you use
0: well we're generally using very very fine um, single I, I use it's an interesting thing at our hospital because I tend to use single interrupted sutures um, and uh, we're using um, absorbable monofilament sutures. Um, and, um, and of course the whole point for me in using those single interrupted sutures, once I get, once I've closed some dead space, I just seem to be able to, f- uh, neutralize the tensions more easily when I'm operating on a st- suture by suture, um, process. If I've got to do a continuous suture, um, then I st- Often find in my hands, I get um, little tight spots or there's extra tension at a particular point. With the single interrupteds, my experience is I can manage that tension. And as you said, uh, it's great to do wonderful surgery, but you've got to have that analgesia in place afterwards to prevent the birds uh, mucking around with the wound. And um, and and I think also exquisite attention to tension within the wound um, even to the point of your surgical planning the angles that you use to incise so that um, you're left with as minimal tension as possible that tends to less than the likelihood the bird's going to pull them out. Those sutures interestingly enough while they will use absorbable sutures, they often don't absorb the the skin and subcutaneous tissue of birds um, is not particularly effective at uh, um, processing those absorbable sutures, and so we will often find more than once. I've found a suture a year down the track just sitting there in the in the plumage as we examine the surgical site at a regular health check. Um, many birds will remove them of their own accord. And so I tend to not worry too much about this the, the single interrupted sutures and wrestling with the bird to remove them unless they look like they're causing a problem.
1: Yes. Two quick questions, Mark, before we close. One, recurrence. What do you think will happen or what does happen if those owners slacken off and they go back to the bad diet and husbandry for that bird, does that lump come back bigger and better than before or does it only partially come back? Is it, is it um, worse or not if um, they rel- relapse? I do think there's a little bit of a funnel effect here. That once the
0: bird has been down that pathway, and particularly if they've had surgery, um, I think the circumstances make it much more likely that they will relapse if the owners are a bit, um, you know, if their circumstances change and they can't keep up the the um, uh, the, the the husbandry. The, the foraging, the support um, with environmental enrichment, the energy balance management. If they if that doesn't happen, they definitely recur. Uh, they, we would, and funnily enough, um, we would have I th- I would say probably a dozen clients where we have for the last six or eight years done uh, surgery on their bird two years out um, because uh, they they're happy their bird enjoys the life it does and um and when when they recur they're happy to get them chopped off
1: yes that isn't the client who wanders in and they have the big pot belly themselves (laughs) i'm not not making any comments (laughs) any aspersions at all um while i remember particularly particularly um, after i talked (laughs) to you about my weight problem at the moment (laughs) no you don't need to worry about that um You did mention earlier on, um, uh, very early on in this topic about hernias in birds, um, and All I'm going to say about that is we did cover that in episode 151, which was um, hernias in in avian species. So for those listeners who are interested in that, just jump back to 151 episode. So finally, Mark, um, prevention. And I think you've sort of already touched on the important aspect of that, and it's the the husbandry. But um, do you want to just summarise the prevention of stopping these fatty lumps in our
0: guard? Pets. It is a little bit of an echo, Brendan, because it, uh, it's the same as uh, we said in terms of treatment, and it's the same that we say with so many of our species that we have to look at uh, their um, their activity. We have to keep them active. We have to provide behavioral enrichment. We have to watch the energy balance and provide them with an outstanding diet that satisfies but doesn't exceed their caloric intake. Um, And these things are, um, we talked about how they relapse. But Brendan, to be honest, there are a huge amount of, if you, if clients are interested in finding out about uh, uh, healthy formulated diets and uh, forage ideas for their birds, these things are available now and they're not, you know, it's not as complicated as it once might have been. Even simply creating a, um, a forage tray, a kitty litter tray with, um, uh, you know, the newspaper, recycled newspaper, kitty litter in it and mixing the the pellets and seed in there so the bird has to search for them. Something as simple as that can make a huge difference for these birds, both in their quality of life and the occurrence of these horrible fatty growths.
1: Yes, and I, I noticed that Kate, your lovely life, Kate, has been putting out a forage tray for you, Mark, recently. I don't know whether she's trying to tell you anything there. And with that...